Welcome to Grief is My Sign Hustle. I'm your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am here with Alexandra Wyman. Alexandra, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me today. It's such an honor. I've spent some time inside your beautiful book, The Suicide Club, What to Do When Someone You Love Chooses Death. Such a provocative title. I want to read your bio for our audience just so they know who you are and they know how to find you. Alexandra is an advocate and public speaker for resources in the aftermath of suicide. After she lost her husband to suicide in August of 2020, Alexandra found a need to change the rhetoric around suicide. It's just perfect. Can you help us into that story? Obviously, your bio tells us where we're going to head. But I always ask people the same question, which is what has brought you into this world of grief and loss? Oh, gosh. Yeah. And just thank you for what you do, Megan. I think it's so amazing in the connections and what you're doing to help people and empower people. Cause that's, I think we need more encouragement to share these kinds of stories. So I, I like to start my story by saying that I bought into this idea of a successful life where at least in my family, it was, you go to college, you meet your partner, you buy a house, you get married, you have your 2.4 children, your 1.3 dogs and your picket fence. And that was not at all how things went for me after college. I traveled, got into multiple careers and then finally settled back in Colorado closer to my family. And I was well into my thirties when I ended up meeting Sean and it was this whirlwind romance. We just had this very deep entrenched soul connection. We felt like we'd known each other forever. We were, we used to joke that we were the male female version of each other would just think very similarly. And so we just, we got engaged pretty quickly, got married, bought our house all within the same year, found out that we were expecting and going to have a child and wow, so that all happened. I know. Yeah. So finally I, I just kept thinking to myself, I made it. Yes. I have this successful life and this yeah. is so good. We both had good careers and then this pandemic, this little pandemic thing was happening too. And then, yeah, a little, just over a year after our son turned a year, Sean ended up dying by suicide and it was absolutely devastating. I don't know if there's actually words. Recently, someone asked me, what does that kind of grief feel like? And all I could say was it felt like someone was trying to literally rip a piece of my soul out of my body while I was watching it happen. And I know that might sound really graphic, so I apologize to listeners, But it was absolutely devastating and everything that I thought was the successful life just exploded in one instant. And I just, I didn't, we throw around the word grief, but I, you just don't really understand it until you're in it. And my situation was also a little complicated. There was some additional drama and trauma from some reactions of other family members and friends of Sean's after his death. And there was a lot of blame being thrown around in judgment, which is where I with the help of other practitioners and providers and therapists and reading and doing a lot of my own inner work, was I able to say, how do we switch this away from blame to having more compassion for people who die this way? So that's, that was my introduction to this grief. And it's interesting, I'll say, because just the other day I was thinking you get handed, this is how I feel about it. You got handed this grief thing. I don't know. I use journey. Some people don't like using journey and it's a bummer. It's contributing to who I am today and what I'm doing, the trajectory of where I'm going. 
but there's also a little part of me that still carries this sadness over this is just, it's going to be with me for the rest of my life and it'll morph and change. Yeah. You write so beautifully about this. The the book is, what I'll say about the book is it's like quick and fast. You bring us into the story and you introduce us to your hopes and dreams and what you wanted, just as you described them. And then also to Sean, who we immediately love, right? And part of what I think you do really beautifully is not speculate about all the stuff that we don't know. And you take us through, and the book, it does say what to do. And I, that's a tough, that's your subtitle is what do you do? But really that's what you do is you take us through what happened to you and what you did in order to manage it. And I want, so I want to ask about some of the details of it, because I think that's really what you offer is the difficulty inside the details. The events of Sean's death are very fast, very quick. And you talk about shock and awe as one of your like, look, these stages aren't really it, but this is the experience. Can you just talk about how long that period lasted for you and what was what were the main tasks of that for you? What were you battling with or um, navigating? Yeah, absolutely. My shock period was about four months. And the reason why I know that is because when that shock lifted, I recall very vividly, Mm. it was a full body, mind body shift. And I know exactly where I was, what I was doing. And it was just almost like, like the blinders were lifted and all of a sudden all the feelings that my body and mind were trying to protect me from actually feeling were just flowing. And, but during that shock, I, the way I describe, I was a shell of a person. I had to function. I had my son, so I had to function. And part of my regret and guilt that I have to work through is that for the first two to two and a half weeks, I could not parent him. So he was physically near me. I was with family, so they were able to help, but I wasn't able to really function as a parent. I was just working through the days time would go by and I'd go some days went by, but I don't know what day it is. And there's business that has to be done. I think one of the things that gets me is when people say, don't make any decisions for a year, no big decisions. Right about this. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I had to make decisions. You're talking about. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You gotta make so, decisions. Exactly. There were so many things. I didn't know if I could keep my house. I didn't know what was going to happen with my job. How was I going to support myself, my son? Then I also have these business things of a memorial. What is that going to look like? As I mentioned, my my situation is a little complicated. There were some threats of legal action. So I was trying to manage all that as well, while also having very limited cognitive capacity because I was dealing with this major grief. So it was it was basically just the way I can say it is like being a shell of a person who was just going through day after day. And it's interesting because when you're in it, at least for me, when I was in it, I didn't necessarily, I wouldn't assign those kind of descriptions. But once the shock lifted and I went, oh my gosh, he's not coming home. And I have this massive thing of grief that's just waiting for me to start working through it. And I have to start functioning as a human being and actually adult. So it it wasn't until after that where I went, oh, I I have not been functioning well. I'm not, I've just been existing, I guess, is how I would say it. 
And it's interesting that you describe the lifting and then as it lifts, it's not like it lifts because you're okay, it lifts. And then there's even more feeling on the other side, those sort of cloud lifts. And then you have all this additional processing that you have to do. You do spend a good time in your book talking about, and I think the phrase you say, this manner of death can bring out the absolute worst in people. (laughs) And I want, and I just, first of all, your plain language in the writing, I just love it. It's so approachable. And I think the, I just think the conversation of suicide scares the crap out of people, makes them so reactive that they don't want to talk about it. And your book is, again, it's like concise and it's instructive, but it's also feels like a conversation with a friend. Can you talk a little bit about why you believe this particular manner of death just brings out the worst in people? Because that sentence, you're not just saying that about the people who are around you, although I would love for you to talk about that process, but you go on to say you think it's true about suicide in general. Yeah. And that's just based off of experience of being around other people who've had a loss by suicide and hearing their stories. And I'll see when I share my story, I'll get gasps or, oh my goodness, are you okay? Or what's going on? And I have to remember that it is, it was pretty awful, but then I also, I have to catch myself because sometimes I'm like, oh, but that happens all the time. Like somehow I'm going to normalize and rationalize that. And it does. I think it's because you can't go back and ask the person questions. There, There is still a level of this kind of shock or reaction that can happen with other sudden deaths. But when someone intentionally takes their life, that just adds another layer to the death of, wait a second, why didn't you reach out to me? Why couldn't I save you? We have very much a culture of saving. Let's put on our cape. Let's be the superhero. Let's save people. And when we do that, we take away their choice. As as much as I don't agree with that choice, I have to honor that was Sean's choice. Even with the information that he had at the time, which may have distorted or impacted his ability to make that choice or how he made it. But I just... You can't go back and ask. You can't. It's like grass. You're the way I feel is if someone's on a cliff on the movies and you're trying to grab the hand and they're wearing a glove and the glove slips and that's how it feels is you're just trying to get to that person and you can't. And then it's just what do we do because it's so atrocious and it's so awful to lose someone this way that I think it just creates this automatic sense of we need answers. So we're just going to create whatever space we can to get those answers, which includes blame or includes like needing to hire lawyers. Or I've heard stories of people wanting a homicide investigation because clearly someone couldn't make the choice to end their life. Someone must have done something to them. And that was though there wasn't a homicide investigation in my situation. There were people who said, what did you do to him? You must have done something to him. And so I think that's where just in our brain or mind to try and rationalize something that is irrational just leads to, as you said, these reactions. We're not responding. We're just completely reacting out of the immense pain that we're feeling. It's interesting though, you have a beautiful chapter and I would say maybe some people would find it controversial where you're talking about a couple of things, but one, you give the, you, you, the analogy of, look, if someone was suffering with cancer, 
they get to have a DNR. They get to say that I don't want to have to live with this illness any longer, but we don't extend that to people that we know who have died by suicide saying they just didn't want to live in that pain any longer. Part of what I think is provocative, but I mean that as a compliment, both your subtitle, it says, when you, when someone you love chooses death, that's not what everybody says about what suicide is. They didn't choose this. They were mentally ill. And you have a a part in a chapter where you say, I don't think it's mental illness. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I felt like that was not only courageous, but also very clear and maybe a new voice. Yeah, thanks. So I, I'll just preface this by saying that when I look at health in general and wellness, I am looking at six areas. So I look at nutritional, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, and cellular. So I don't know if you're familiar with Bessel van der Kolk's Body Keeps the Score. That's one of my favorites. And it really highlights just how we hold on to things at a cellular level. And so I find that we are constantly trying to do othering, which I just learned this term recently at a conference for suicide prevention. But just for listeners, othering is when my understanding is when we start to create space between here's the reason why it happened to you and here's the reason it's not going to happen to me. And so with mental, by saying that suicide is directly um, related to mental illness, it creates a space for us to say, I don't have mental illness, so I don't have to worry about suicide. But in my opinion and in my experience, and I want to make sure it's really clear that I'm coming from a lived experience perspective, suicide does not discriminate. And I find that when we just say, oh, it's a mental illness, we're missing a massive emotional component to it. And maybe the emotional component is just assumed to be part of it. But when it comes to looking at our physical health impacts, our mental capabilities, our nutritional health impacts, our me- like yeah. they all impact each other. Right. So that's part of the reason why I say, one, I don't think it's just a relationship with mental illness. Do I think that there may have been some thinking, and I referenced this earlier, of like, Sean made a decision with the information that he had and was in so much pain that at that point, I believe he thought this was the only way to actually end his pain. Do I agree that was the only way to end his pain? No, but that's the information that he had. The other piece I'll say is that there are definitely people who have died by suicide who have had diagnosed mental illnesses, whether it's clinical depression or a a different diagnosis. But again, it's, there's no blueprint to it. And so I think that's where I see a little bit of that difference of we just can't box it up and label it nicely to, to, for the prediction. I was just recently at a, a conference for suicide prevention, and that was the majority of research is how do we predict suicide? And I was so grateful that some researchers actually stood up and said, you can't. Yeah. So let's try and put more money into postvention and intervention instead of continuing to try and, and predict it. So that's where that was coming from. Although you also have in your book a, a, a anecdotal story of someone who's aware that a person might die by suicide, might take their own life and does intervene and is still aware, right? And so mm-hmm. it's interesting. We don't collect the data well enough, but there is some data out there that says that notion where we're like, 
this person, I'll say it like this, in the field that I'm from, we consider homicide and suicide as just inward, outward energies. Homicide is I'm taking the energy that I have and killing someone else. Similar energy, it's going inward, that is suicide. And so in both cases, whether it's homicide or suicide, there is an idea that like, if we train mental health professionals well enough, they'll be able to prevent these acts of violence. But the reality is that's just more of what you're describing, which is we just want to have agency over something we have no agency over. Yeah, said. <laughs> and, I, and I think you give us a really beautiful sort of the way that you come into the chaos that becomes Sean's last day is the way anybody could come into a day. They're in a vague fight with their spouse. Like it looks like that. And one of the things I said it recently on a different podcast, one of the things we don't talk about is what are the emotions and sensations that do cause people to feel like there is no other way. And when we think about things like obsessive thinking and ruminations, which are features of certain, if we strip away the word mental health and more say, what are your symptoms? Mm-hmm. Most people that have attempted suicide will tell you they had profound bouts of obsessive thinking. And obsessive thinking from a trauma perspective is actually a form of caretaking. I have energy that I can't handle, emotions that I can't handle. So it may, would it be better if I obsessed about getting the groceries or cleaning the car? Yes. But instead my mind is saying to me, there's a way out of this. There's a way out of this terrible way that you're feeling right now. And in other things, if, if you were obsessively thinking about spiders, if you had ruminations about spiders, we would say, oh, we, Alexander, there's a kind of treatment protocol that we use so that we can help you manage your obsessive thoughts. And we don't really talk about that in the same way around suicide and people who have, who are managing hard feelings with perpetual thoughts of, I know a way to get out of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that came up for Sean, at least in trying, so one of the perspectives that I'm looking into a little bit more and seems to resonate more for me is is as you're speaking about those ruminating thoughts is this stress management. And I know that's a buzzword right now. I don't know how many doctors I've had who've said, Alexandra, you just need to decrease your stress or get rid of it. I'm like, I love that. What I love even more is they're like, you just need to get more sleep. Oh, that didn't occur to me. Thanks. Mm -hmm. I'll just get more sleep. I'll go to the grocery store and get it. It's that like the get over it or just get that pill, the magic, whatever that magic is. And I find that more and more when I'm speaking to people or about different situations of individuals who are dying by suicide, it's just stress that compounds to stress that compounds. And then it's, there's just no way out of get, there's no way to get out from under it. And that can lead to some of those ruminating thoughts. Or additionally, one of the things that I've been talking about more has just been coping skills. Like you're talking about, here's this protocol that we could use to help you. For Sean, he just didn't believe anything would work for him. So that's like an area of the population that I'm hoping to somehow figure out or collaborate or work with others to see how can we almost systematically shift what we have going on. We have protocol. If you have a transit, oh my gosh, I was just seeing this the other day, a TIA. A transient ischemic attack, like a a mini stroke, essentially. 
after that, there's a, as you're talking about, here's a protocol for what to do so that you don't have a major stroke. If you have something happen with your heart, okay, if you have to have bypass surgery, here's what we can do. And I'll be very honest. There were no signs that Sean was going to die by suicide. Did I know that he was dealing with a lot of stress? Absolutely. But no point in time was there any way to say, here's what we can do for stress management. And here's why, because you need to, it's, it's so hard to tease apart all the different layers of this, but so often we just say manage your stress. And yes, we do have like our meditations and our journaling and, and there's a lot more information out there. Um, but I don't know that it's robust enough to really be able to implement for people where we like to have step one, step two, step three. We like to have that linear path of this is what you can do to alleviate some of that. But even saying that, like I said, Sean didn't believe anything was going to work for him because he had internalized very early on that he was broken and that he was not worthy of anything really helping him. So it just all contributes to exactly what you're saying of then we get stuck in. There is a mental component, obviously, of getting stuck in our head and then really thinking that this is an answer. And to be fair, it is an answer. It's not an answer any of us like, but it is an answer. It is an answer, right? And when you think about exquisite pain, whether it's psychic or otherwise, and actually there's a lot of data that tells us psychic pain and physical pain are the same, actually, that they Mm -hmm. run the same neural pathways. But I think one of the things, it's evident in your book, and, and I can really feel it when you're talking, is the more you know and understand right? The more possibility there is for hope like that. You talk about hopelessness and helplessness in your book, which I think is really an important part of the idea of feeling like there's no way out. But when one of the things I really think is important when people are grieving is just like telling them what is normal. Grievers are like, oh, I'm still upset four months later. I'm like, four months later, you're, you haven't even begun. You're all, you're two months, you're, uh, three years in and three years in still feels early for such a terrible event, a sudden event that nobody expected. But the world doesn't, when they haven't been grieving, they just don't have that norm out there. And so a lot of what you're offering, I think in the book, you give us some examples of things that helped you in order to move energy through you. You're really honest. You're like, I drank a lot in the beginning. And then I was like, oh, my nutrition. But part of what you're talking about is the whole system. The body is an interlock. It's got 12 systems inside of it. And those systems can all be impacted by stress. And how are we educating people so that they don't feel like nothing can help me? How how can we support them so that they feel like something is possible? And maybe part of that is saying people have suicidal thoughts. That's like a thing that happens. Yeah. I And one of the things too with that is to normalize and and bear with me on this, to normalize that we all have events that impact us negatively. Because when I think when we can start having those conversations and create that connection, connection is something that comes up so much recently in, in current suicide prevention research is when people feel connected, they start to feel seen. And I think that's a big component to be seen for who you are, including all the ups and downs without having a fear of judgment for what you've experienced. And culturally right now, I can say it sometimes feels very divisive because of that othering of, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I've got my house. I've got my car. I've got my job. I'm good. I don't have to worry about that. But we all have things that happen. And one of the things that helped me through, I was, I was coming up on barrier after barrier feeling like my 
I just wasn't getting anywhere with my grief, with my healing. And I realized I had to start looking at messages I got as a child and how those impacted me as an adult and the decisions I was making and start healing those and working through those in order to be able to start setting boundaries and move forward currently. And that is something I'm encouraging lots of people to do at this point is how do we work through that shame and guilt that we carry for so long in order to start healing so that we can children mimic what adults are doing so that we can start teaching kids and teaching other people around us. Cause once people see how we're doing, it's encouraging. It used to be, I don't know how much it is now encouraging of other people to be like, wait, you're actually working through stuff. And it seems like it's really working. What are you doing? Kind of thing. Yeah. And seeing if that, that can help as well. But yeah, it's such, it's complex. And like you said, we like to make it really simplistic and, and it just isn't and grief isn't. And I'll say this just the other day, I was like, man, I feel like I am two and a half years ago with my grief. And I'm like, I should be farther along. It's been three years, but it's absolutely the shooting (laughs) comes up. And the truth is it's just not going, it doesn't work that way. Part of the reason I have an Instagram account is so that I can say, look, I've got a couple of master's degrees. I've been doing this work for 20 years. My mom died suddenly. I had PTSD. And today is a garbage day. Today, I can't eat any food because I got upset earlier and my whole entire digestive tract shut down. And the reason I say it is if one or two people are like, oh, grief can be like that. Then, then I've done my job for the day because what people think it's is three months maximum. Oh my, the number of grievers that are like, oh, is it still hard? Is it still hard? Like, yes, shocking every day. (laughs) The love of my life died in a really violent way when I had a small child and it's still hard. Shockingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you mean? Is it still hard? Can I ask, because I found this part of the book so hard you have this terrible, horrific day where you know what Sean is up to. You can't stop him. And you just know in your bones. And I really related to that because I have a lot of somatic knowings about things. I, I have felt terrible things as they're happening myself. And you are surrounded by friends and family. You are surrounded. You're in your community. You have people there, his family, your family. Where I want this story to go is she and her son are so well supported in this terrible time in her life. And that is not where the story goes. (laughs) So can you tell me about what I would call like the secondary loss of being connected to people who acted like lunatics around you who did not support you and in fact really made your life worse? And that of your child worse? What do you, even now, today, I I have people that I'm like, I still can't believe you said that to me four years ago, seven years ago. I maybe have forgiven them, but the impact, the imprint of having someone say that to me or believe that of me is still maybe a little bit tattooed on me. So how do you still speak to these people? Like, how does your life function? What did, what else had to take place during that time of tremendous trauma. Yeah. And actually I'll say part of the fallout of a lot of what happened is what pushed me 
too have to look at some of those childhood trends. The, one of the main ones was the people pleaser. So I bought into everything that was being said about me. And I was like, well, it must be true, right? Because these people loved Sean and I was married to him. So why would they say things that aren't true? I still don't know why people no. have to say things that aren't true. But the truth is, and I, I worked with a therapist early on. I've had several, but I worked with one early on. And she was like, she just kept saying, I need you to quiet those voices and get real about what you know about your relationship with Sean. Mm. And that's what you're going to hold on to. In regards to it, I had to start setting really strict boundaries. And some people honored them and some people didn't. And for the people, I'll say the majority of the people who were threatening legal action, who were trying to whisper about potentially trying to get custody of my son. There were memorials or events that were happening that we were not invited to. Most of those people are currently cut out. And I just found that one, I had to do that for me because as I was and still am working through this, I have not been very confident and I've had to work through how to become more confident in who I am becoming. And part of that mourning is you don't just mourn the loss of the person. I've been mourning who I am now, who I was before the loss of who that person was, what my life was going to be like, what it's like now. So we don't just mourning is like complex even there because it's all of it. And so one, I, I realized I, for me to be confident, I had to set some pretty hard boundaries with people and say, I can't do this anymore. The other thing that came up for me is I kept thinking to myself, what am I teaching my son? If I allow these people to continue to be in my life, if they cannot figure out a way to support me, and why would I let any of these people near my son if they have such poor opinions of me? That's and right. that's been that's been the driving force when my people pleaser starts to come out, and I go, nope. What am I teaching? What am I teaching him? And of course, I don't want to say cut people out. I'm I'm not for that. I just found that no matter, and let me say, I tried to have conversations with people. I even did like the writing letters to try and see if that would help. And I tried to exhaust every possibility as I could to try and rectify the situation. And when those strategies weren't working as when I finally said, okay, then this is what needs to happen. What I'll say to you, that's, and I had this experience reading the book. I, it felt to me like you were really generous that you were very generous with other people, that when they wanted services to be different than what would have been good for you, you let them try those things, that when they wanted to go back to the place where he died with ashes, that you let them do that. I just felt like there was a lot of generosity in your desire to be connected to people. But even just now, when you were like, look, I tried all the things, I just want to say to you, even if you didn't try all the things, even if you were like, Linda, I'm not talking to you again and hung up on her. I feel like that would have been a fine boundary that we don't have to always try all the things. And in fact, when we're grieving and we're going through a trauma, we may have to keep all of our energy to ourselves for me and my kid. And you know what? Maybe in five or six years, Linda, I'll explain to you why <laughs> I couldn't call you back ever again because of what you did. But it really gave me pause because part of how you write about it, what you say is I have anecdotally heard many stories and you are connected to so many people who are impacted by suicide that it really gave me pause. People act out in this way when they have feelings they can't handle, right? That's- Oh, absolutely. 
and the acting out whoo it's whoo there was a lot of it there and I just uh, as I was reading it I was like how dare you put this mother and this child through this experience you're grown-ass adults go into the bathroom and look at yourself you are a grown-up that even if you believed that you still owe this family even if you believed it the things that you are saying that somehow you were a malevolent force in his life you are still a grieving spouse who needs support and care and instead they yeah. came, they came after you Yes. And, and I'll, t- and I'll say you asked, I was not expecting that at all. Yes. And I think it took me a little bit. Things were starting day zero. I did not know this until later, but things were starting the night that he passed and some were trying to protect me and keep me from it. And once I found out what was happening, I was like, wait, what is going on here? And so it just, so yes, I absolutely was looking for this connection. And I think that's part of the driving force of trying to write something because I thought, oh my gosh, if someone else has to go through this, I was given some really nice prayer journals and, and things like that. But no one gave me the, when shit hits the fan and people are coming after you and your safety and your livelihood, especially after losing a loved one here, like, here's what you can do. Here's how to separate. Cause I couldn't separate. So I was just taking it all in versus being like, oh no, that's your stuff. Like you go and you handle your stuff. And quite honestly, one of the things I kept saying is you don't have to like me. You can hate me. You can put it on social media. You can do what you have to. You don't need me though. And for whatever reason they did, you don't need me to acknowledge and validate how much you hate me. And that was a thing, really what I wanted to touch on was this comparison, this grief comparison. And I don't know if you've experienced this before or heard other people, but it's almost, I knew him better. So my grief is more important or I knew him longer. So my, it's like, grief is grief. Like, why can't we just come together and mourn the loss of an amazing person together versus having to start keeping score on, on whose grief is more important? It's interesting. Cause I often used with people, I'm like, look, if you're hungry and I'm hungry, we're just hungry and we need to eat. It doesn't matter if you missed four meals and I missed one meal, it doesn't actually matter at all. The body still needs to eat. And there is this, I do think loss impacts people differently, Mm. but I don't think there's a standard when it impacts the wife more than it impacts the mother. I don't, when people are not able to process their own feelings, validate their own feelings, acknowledge their own feelings, they do tend to find themselves more in that comparative state. And I can fully appreciate And this is the piece that I really think you taught me in the book is, yeah, and this stuff, this crazy stuff that happens in some instances is more likely to happen when there is a suicide because people hold themselves in that helpless place. Why didn't I know? Why didn't I do anything? Even though, look, I think actually we can't know. And if someone doesn't want to tell you and if they're withholding that from you and maybe if they've never felt that way before, but the helplessness seems to be driving some of the acting out behavior and the acting out behavior is I am the most entitled to the most of all the pains. Yeah. hundred percent. It absolutely. That's how it comes across to me. And and exactly what you're saying. I have these feelings. I don't know. I can't go to my person and yell at him and be like, Hey, pick up your phone. And I will say, I think there was an element for some people that they didn't realize the severity of the situation until it was very dire. And I think there's a lot of guilt around that. Absolutely. That is the thing that is, I think, 
the most brutal and distinct. I think regret and guilt are a part of everybody's grief journey, no matter what they're grieving. My dad died of cancer. The five minutes after he died, I had this really hard moment of God, why didn't I do this thing differently? And I was like, oh, this is just part of it. So I think it's part of everybody's journey, but I think it is incredibly brutal. I think it's like a, I don't know, like a bully that sits at the front of the bus while you're trying to drive when suicide has taken place because it feels as though it's something that we should have been able to prevent. It feels right. Whether or not we can, that's what it feels as though. It feels as though if we had done something different or known something different or could have helped, then we wouldn't have this unbearable, totally brutal outcome. And, and the, I've gone through everything. I still have regrets of maybe I should have done this or that or okay. how, and the truth is part of what I've had to, I won't say I'm completely, I've completely come to terms, but working on it of that. Yep. Yeah, I could have done that. I like, once I figured out the general area where he was, I could have driven there, but the truth of the matter is the outcome still could have been the same. Yeah. And that's, what's really hard is and I do mention this in the book too, of like people survive attempts. Yeah. Like why did my person survive? Yeah. That was so hard for me of like, we, why is my person gone? And that in and of self is comparison. Like, why do you, why does your loved one get to stay? And mine has to go. I call and that grief math though. I think we all do that. Like my dad died when he was 80. He's like an old man. And I don't know, weeks later, somebody in passing was like, oh, I'm going to see my dad for his 80th fifth birthday. And I was like, fuck you. How come you get your dad for five more years? And I get my dad. And I was like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Like my dad was an old man. I think there is in the pain of it, a little bit of the math that we do, which is like, how come your outcome was not as terrible as my outcome? Like I'm a good mm-hmm. person. They're a good Great. Person. Exactly. Oh, totally. What did I do to cause this? What did I do? What karmic retribution right. is coming tenfold? Like I, I would have taken another one <laughs> than this. Yeah. It's so interesting though, because Kate Bowler would tell us that goes all the way back to the belief in the prosperity Bible that like, if you do good things, then God will love you and give you good things. And we have a lot of data that says that's not the way it goes yeah. down, including the story of Job in the actual <laughs> Bible. I did want to ask you about your experiences with things that did feel like they were life-sustaining for you. You're really generous in the book and you talk about humor and you talk about faith and you even talk about a medium. Can you just tell us like, how do you, when people hear the story and when they read the story, it is one of those things where people say, They say it out loud. I don't know how you could possibly live through it. No one knows how they could possibly live through it. They couldn't five minutes before it happened. They're just learning and becoming the person that could live through it. But what are the things that did, that have helped you bear not only the death of your husband, but also the onslaught of aggressive behavior after that, the secondary war you found yourself in? Such a good question. One of the things I'll say is actually working through and feeling the feels. And I'll be honest, I normally don't share that one. But as you were talking, I was like, actually, that's a big one, not avoiding them. And there are moments where I've had to say, oh, I can't deal with that feeling right now. I'm going to tuck that away and come back to it. 
but actually working through and allowing myself to actually feel the range of feelings, which I was advised very early on by someone who was um, a, a widow by suicide. And I loved her her analogy, you're holding on to a surfboard and you're in the middle of the ocean. And sometimes it's calm seas and sometimes you're in a squall, but whatever you do is you hold on to that surfboard and you hold on for dear life and you can get through it. And, Mm. but to work through those feelings, um, yeah, I, I wanted to know everything. My spirituality was rocked. Everything that I thought I knew about how life was going to be or death or my spirituality was all questioned. And so I, as you said, I have consulted mediums. I got sucked into TV shows about mediums or about death. Um, I, I like how you uh, talk about Ozarks. Ozarks was a TV show for me too, where I was like, this, these are the worst people doing the worst things and they all die. I, I, there is something (laughs) really perverse when you're in a lot of pain about, watching and consuming things that are even worse uh, the so darkest I really the appreciated dark. that example <laughs> even the video of Ozark it's all dark it's always raining mm-hmm. yeah that was really yeah and it's interesting that you say that because even recently I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's also in grief therapy and she's a practitioner but she we were talking about dark humor and yeah. it's there's just something and there are moments where I catch people off guard and a classic story of mine is my son's swim instructor made a comment about him being a mama's boy. And I just looked at him and I was like, well, he doesn't have a choice, does he? And his face just dropped. And I was like, oh, sorry, that just came out. We just do that on my side of the street. We just say those kind of funny things. Yeah. So definitely, I think one, yeah, definitely feeling the feels. The other thing I'll say is I've really had to embrace the differences and this is still really hard, but embracing the differences of who I am now versus who I was before. And there are certain things that are just different. Like that humor piece is a little different. There are certain things that I just don't find interesting anymore. I was actually really sad. I was really looking forward to football season, professional football season this year. And I watched two games and I was like, oh, this is so not enjoyable as much as it used to be. So just embracing that. But I'll I'll say I have tapped in. I will screen. I will do screen therapy. I will meditate. I will journal. It changes every day what is going to work for me. Sometimes I have dance parties with my son. Sometimes I'm working out. It just changes. And, and I'm a big proponent of grab onto whatever tools you can and put them in your toolbox and have them ready to go because you never know. First of all, you just never know when you're going to be hit with grief. There are times I'm totally fine. And then other times I just start tearing up. It's just recently happened on a plane ride where I was like, why are my eyes leaking so much? I just can't stop crying. For me, I'm, I say that I'm a recovering outcome controller. So I like to control <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I like to control situations and I've had to learn to just ride that wave and and let it be. And and the other thing that's been important is if I didn't have my son, I don't, I can't say for sure that I would actually be here. And that one's even hard for me to work through, but he's been my anchor. He's been my reason for working through my own stuff so that I can teach him how to work through his. And I do think it's important for people to have something like an anchor like that to, to help so that on those days where you just want to be like, nope, I'm not getting out of bed. No, maybe I will brush one tooth. Maybe we'll see. But on those days that there's some reason that can get you out to brush that one tooth or maybe two. So it's just, 
yeah, uh, there's no one thing that works. It just depends on the day. But there is something, I mean, it reminds me of when I've had conversations with people who are like astounding athletes and part of it, part of what you hear from folks who are trying to achieve something extraordinary is the like, I just wanted to see if I could do it. And I also thought maybe I could do it. And when I'm talking to grievers, I'm like, you have to want to see if you can do it. And for most people, there's a period of time where they do not where they're not getting up and they're not getting dressed. And that isn't, but I think because we're wired to live, there comes a moment where it's, okay, I will go outside or I will call that person back or I will. When that energy starts, if you can get curious, like most of us as grievers have never done this before. Like you may have grieved your grandfather, but you didn't grieve your husband suicide before. And so it really is like this experimental process where you have to try shit. And so when I'm working with grievers, that's what I say is I'm just going to make a whole bunch of suggestions. And when, as soon as you hear something and you're like, that's not the worst, most impossible thing in the world, then that's what we'll try. Anything seems possible. Even if you can only do it 30%, that's more than nothing. And the whole thing about grieving is you have to figure out how to move forward in your life. What I just really, it gave me chills when you said it is I am still adjusting to who I am no longer. Mm-hmm. I I want to say this because I think most people who listen to a podcast called Grief is My Side Hustle are actual grievers. I want to say to those folks, I don't think people believe us when we say we are no longer who they, we used to be. Oh, I do not think they believe us. I think they're like, oh, that's just how you feel now. You'll be back. You are, because I have had conversations now. So my mom died four years ago, my dad six years ago. And they're still like, oh, I didn't know if you were still not doing that. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm never going to do that again. Right. And they're like, just oh, checking, thought, just making sure. I just thought maybe that was temporary. Or oh, I didn't know if maybe you were going to change your mind about that or come back around to this thing. And these are people who love me and care about me. They're not, you know, coming in hot. And I'm like, no. Remember, it's like I used to wear those shoes and then my feet grew two sizes. So I'm never gonna wear those shoes again. And I've been really stunned by that because in all of the literature, all the memoirs, all the books, all the things, we all say the same thing. And now my sort of embodied experience is, oh, I don't think you fucking believe me. You wouldn't have asked that question if you believed what I said, which is I'm never going back to the, look, part of me is still here. I'm still who I am. But when those parts of me fell off, they fell off. And these new parts that are weird and different and goes to bed at eight o'clock and maybe doesn't (laughs) talk to people I don't want to talk to and maybe only reads memoir. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. how it is. That's who I am now. And I I just just, really appreciate you saying that. I really appreciate it. And I was going to say, I appreciate you saying it because that's something sometimes I'm look toward the people who've met me after Sean died. And I'm like, oh, I feel like it's a little easier for them because they don't know the difference. And there are people. And what's really hard for me is when I can tell that people are trying to connect with me and they're trying to still 
have some sort of relationship with me and I know what reaction they want from me. This is something that comes up in my therapy quite often because I feel horrible because I can see what reaction that they want and I can't fake it. And sometimes some of the ladies that I used to hang out with and they'll send memes around that are just about how their husband is just not doing the dishwasher the way they want them to. And they get all the smiley faces and I just want to take my phone and throw it out the window and smash it and be like, that's great because I'm still doing the dishes. (laughs) When again, I can see that they're trying to connect and I can't give them what they want. And that, that for me is probably one of the hardest things. And so it does not that I avoid those people, but I do appreciate that you're also like, and maybe I'm going to be selective about who I'm hanging around because it is, it's harder for me if I feel like I need to convince people or if I have to put on some sort of air of what I used to be like. And I can't even put on the air. No, like I used to be able to be like, all right, I'm going to put my lipstick on and my high heels on and I'll go to this party. And I'm, I'm like, I actually can't make my body do that. Maybe that's also, I'm not 25 anymore. And now I'm 50 and I'm like, I don't know when you're, when you're 50, I'm not even 50, I'm 49. But when you're this age, like you just are too much of a actual person to be influenced in that kind of way where I'm like, I'm going to do it for you. I can't, it's too, I can't put my feet in those shoes for you. I can't do it. But I think also when you're in the grieving space, like there's a, you're using so much of your energy to become a new way. I found it really excruciating. Like the most excruciating, the hardest part of grieving I found was being in front of people who knew me to be a certain way because I could see the confusion and the disappointment and like a little bit of fear. And I actually sometimes relished in it where I'm like, I know I look like a mess (laughs) and it's a little scary, but this is how it feels. Mm-hmm. This is how it feels. And I think people, especially people who give you the feedback of, I liked it better when you used to, I don't know, make me lemonade. And now you don't do that anymore. It's actually, I liked that better too. So oh, yeah. I'm not just over here disappointing you. I'm trying to be a person who can't make lemonade anymore because I need yeah. the energy that I used to make lemonade with to like just be a woman who has lost her husband. And I don't think people really get that. And I, so I just, no, it's, and one of the things too, that my therapist will say on that note, and he'll also be like, and you also weren't a single mom before. Yeah. Hello. It's not only that your the capacity is going towards my healing. I recently had someone along these lines who was saying that I don't laugh and they were attributing it to a friendship I had. Oh, when you're around that person, like you just don't laugh, you're not happy. And I was like, I haven't laughed really hard in three years. And that devastates me because I like laughing and I used to be really witty and I used to be so quick to respond. And that part of me just isn't there. And maybe, like you said, maybe it'll come back. Maybe it won't. I don't know. I can belly laugh with my kid all day long, just a little different when you laugh with an adult, but, but yeah, you're right. Like your energy and your, and I say this, I'm like, but whatever energy or capacity I have left over, if I do, I'm very particular about who I'm around and who I spend that with. And so as that's also a hard thing for other people, cause I'm like, some people make the cut and some people don't. And I know that sounds really harsh, but I'm 
trying to create again with trying to be more confident in what I'm doing is to create a culture and um a a group or a connection or community around me that's going to continue to lift me up and encourage me on this road as I am completely stumbling because I have no idea what I'm doing as you said yeah. you just don't know that's um but then I'm so I I might be a little bit more particular about where that time and energy is going if I have any of it yeah. And I think it's messy and I think it's hard. And I really, the people who love us, I have a different sort of appreciation of, I know it's really hard to support someone who's grieving also because you're impacted by their grief. I, my best friend and I talk about this a lot that I didn't really care how I, how my sadness was impacting her. I could only care about my sadness. I'm years out from that now. So it feels differently, but I, but again, everybody is navigating this. I think your story is distinct because people, they came at you. And I don't know that's something that is, I don't know that everybody gets that experience. And it does sound like maybe that's more true when there's a violent death, like you're describing, and maybe it wouldn't have happened if Sean died of cancer. Maybe people would have been more compassionate. We're all adjusting to the stupid hand of cards that we were dealt. The other thing you were doing with your grief was creating this beautiful book. So I want to say to people that you can order the Suicide Club if for some reason you can't do that and you want a copy of it, get in touch with us through my website and I will send you a copy. My team will have multiple copies and we'll send it out. We're going to link your profile and all that in the story notes so that if people want to know where to find you or talk more with you, that they'll be able to do that. Is there anything upcoming any talks or anything that you're doing that you want to let us know about so that we can- actually I'm, I'm looking forward to a little bit of a break. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, love that. Yeah, no, you can definitely reach out to me at Alexandra for to joy.com for any questions or yeah, I'd love to hear stories or be able to be another support or a resource. Yeah. And again, I think not everybody writes a book. Not everybody welcomes conversation after a tragedy. And that's part of what you're doing with your energy is connecting with others and being a safe place in a dark land, which I'm grateful for because we don't have enough lighthouses out there. But I'm really grateful for your book. I really do think you said some things in here that I hadn't read before. And I feel like I've read everything. I want to say congratulations on that. I want to say I'm grateful that that you were able to find words. And I'm really just sorry for the experience. I'm sorry for the wisdom that you have and how you had to come to it, but I'm grateful for other people who are going to need someone to lead them down the dark. You give, you just give a lot of really concrete examples. I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I'm going to let you go. <laughs> Good luck in this new part of becoming you and, and becoming in your life. I am going to hope that belly laugh finds you. We'll understand if it doesn't, but I'm going to hope that somewhere down the line, I- It's on the list. So hopefully it's coming my way. (laughs) But really, this was such an honor. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you so much for guiding us on such a hard topic and sharing your story with us. Oh, thank you so much, Megan. It was a pleasure. Take good care, Alexandra. Right. Bye-bye.